Let's start with the God quake. At the very beginning of this passage, there's the image that's on the front of your bulletin. You'll see little Isaiah there encountering the glory and the holiness of God. At the very beginning of the passage, Isaiah goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he is bowled over. Why? Because he encounters the Lord high and lifted up. In other words, Isaiah is like so many of us. He's going into the service, and the reason he is so shocked is because the last person he expected to meet there was God. But there he is. And then verse 3 further explains. It says, Isaiah comes into contact with the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what happens? The thresholds begin to shake. There's an earthquake. That's what the descending glory of God does. Speaking of glory, let me think a little bit about that word with you. In Hebrew, the word glory, kavod, it literally means weight, weightiness. It's about having mass. It's about the permanent versus the ephemeral and the fleeting. It's about the substantial versus the trite and the unimportant. It's about the real versus the illusory. When Isaiah speaks about God's glory, he's talking about God's gravitas, his weightiness. Compared to anything and everything else, God alone is permanent. God alone is real. God alone matters compared to anything and everything else. Think of it like this. If you drop an object, a water or a, rock, a brick or a rock, for example, into the water, there's going to be a splash. There's going to be a little flood. It's going to be a water quake because that object has more glory than the water. When God comes into your life, when his reality comes into my existence, everything changes. There's a God quake. Now, in the wider context of the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, the God quake that Isaiah experiences in the temple was not actually all that surprising. On many, many occasions in the Bible, when God's glory comes down, there's an earthquake. If you know the Bible a little bit, you'll be aware of this. That's what happens, for example, in the book of Exodus. When God came down on top of Mount Sinai, the mountain shuddered violently. It's what happens in the New Testament, too. If you go to the end of St. Matthew's Gospel and you read about the resurrection of Jesus, that was the greatest manifestation of God's glory ever. What does Matthew say happened? He says there was an earthquake and the stone rolled away from the grave. Why all this quaking? Because God's glory is without equal. Compared to God, everything else has no weight. And so whenever God comes down, things get shaken. Or to put it another way, when there's a God quake, everything gets rearranged, reshuffled, reengineered, rearranged. It's kind of like what happens when I leave my kids in the house and go out into the yard to do some gardening. When I come back, Everything in the house is dramatically and bizarrely rearranged. Whatever feng shui we may have achieved, it's ruined. Isaiah goes into the temple. He encounters God's glory and his view of himself, his view of history, his view of the world. Everything is forever changed. And I have no doubt that he came out with a suntan as well. Now as we reflect on this experience, here's what I want you to take away. The difference, this is really important, the difference between God as an idea or a concept and God as a reality. The difference between God as an idea and the difference in God as a reality. The difference between believing in God and experiencing God's glory and being transformed by it. 
When Isaiah walks into the temple and has this vision, this encounter with God, he does not say, notice, he does not say, oh, there is a God after all. That's not what he says. He already believed in God. Of course he did. But until this moment, however, God was just an idea for him, a concept. But in this moment, God becomes a reality. This is something like what happened to me in 2006 in Ottawa, Canada. I was living up there for the year. And it was a time of testing, and it was a time of wrestling. It was a time of discerning whether the faith in which I was raised and baptized was going to be something that I was going to preserve and lean into, into my adult years. And to some extent, the verdict was out. But then one night, it was a really cold night. All the nights up there were really cold, in fact. And one night, something happened. Jesus came into my mind. The reality of God was manifest. I don't think anyone could see or feel it but me, though. And here's some words that I wrote to help describe that experience. Heat in the cold, light in the dark. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of David. The God of Daniel. The God who met Paul on the road to Damascus. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. Power. The God of Jesus Christ. The world forgotten for that moment, everything except God. There was some vivid spiritual warfare that came along with that. And if you want to talk, I'll talk to you about that later if you're curious. And it was on that night that I got on my knees. Not the first time I got on my knees to pray, but I got on my knees that night. And it was the first time I had prayed without reserve in my heart. That was 2006 in February. Now what more can we say about the difference between God as an idea... And the reality of God, the fire of God. I'll tell you, the idea of God, the concept of God is lighter than you, not heavier. When you bring God into your life as an idea or a concept, you shape it. It fits around your world as you've set it up. You fit it into your existing patterns of living and thinking. In other words, it does not move you around. It does not quake you. Do you understand? God as a concept cannot really change you. It just fits around your existing ways of living and thinking. And when that happens, and to the extent that that happens, here's what happens. You control God. His voice in your head might actually just be your voice in disguise. Let me give you an illustration. This is one way I've seen this play out pretty consistently over the last 10 years. When I was ministering in England and before that out in Vancouver, folks would pretty regularly come up to me and say, Pastor, there is no way I can believe this or that part of the Bible because modern people can't believe that anymore. It's simply redonkulous. We know better now. That's what they would say. In other words, what we believe, what we're going to believe from the Bible, what we're willing to accept and trust out of God's Word, it's going to be determined by our cultural moment. It's going to be determined by what society tells us is acceptable and respectable and plausible. And by the way, that is constantly in flux. And that creates a problem. What's the problem? In this scenario, you don't have a real God. You don't have a God who can change your deepest beliefs, who can rearrange, re-engineer your most fundamental basic convictions. You don't have a God who can contradict you. Because he fits into you. 
You shape the God idea. It doesn't shape you. Let me put it this way. You, your preferences, my judgment, our sensibilities, our patterns of life, our vested interests, they have more glory than the God idea, more weight. However, when God becomes a reality, like what happened to Isaiah in the temple, that begins to shift. And one of the ways you know that you've encountered the living God and not just the concept of God is that that begins to shift because God, the reality, is heavier than you. And when you actually encounter the living God, you get changed. Things give way to His glory. Things you may have always believed, things you've taken for granted, things you've held very deeply, they get changed by His Word. The way that I think and feel can be changed by God. And so now instead of trying to fit God into my agenda, God becomes my agenda. That's one way to think about it. Generally speaking, the agenda that most of us these days in the United States, for example, tend to carry is something like this. It's an, the agenda is to have a safe life, a tidy little life, a life where you, you kind of watch your back, where you're careful, where you hedge your bets, where you take care of number one. And then God comes in, the reality of God comes in, and He says, whoa, I want you to be courageous. I want you to live daringly by faith. I want you to be radically generous. I want you to love and serve sacrificially all your neighbors. I want you to forgive like there's no tomorrow. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to sacrifice some of your individual needs because I'm more real than your individual needs. I have glory. When God, the reality, comes into your life, all that kind of stuff and a whole lot more begins to change. This is how we here at Christ the King right now in 2023, become the salt and the light that Jesus calls us to be, Matthew chapter 5. That's how we do it individually and as a community. And let me add something here. Everyone who knows God is a reality can remember a time or perhaps some times when God ceased to be just an idea and started to become a reality. I told you a story about that in my life from Ottawa in 2006. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Do you know when it was? Can you remember? We need to remember those moments, dwell on them, and we need to pray for more of them. Let me add this too, because I know some of you are probably thinking it. There is no mold or pattern that these experiences have to fit. They can be and they are unique and personal. They can be sensational. You can get slain by the Spirit at a tent revival. They can be really subtle, something that no one sees or feels but you. They can cause you to tremble. They can cause you to stop trembling. They're all different. That's okay. The question is, has it happened to you? Has God contradicted you? Has he completely rearranged, maybe demolished your agenda, the way that you look at and negotiate life? Has he reconfigured your values? Has that happened? Have you experienced a God quake? So... There's God, who's a Quaker. You didn't know he was a Quaker, did you? You probably thought he was a Baptist or an Anglican, but he's a Quaker. Let's move on to the other thing I want to talk about this morning. Uh, here's a key question. How do you know if God, the reality, has come into your existence as opposed to just God, the idea? How do you know? The answer is that you have a self-quake. You have a self-quake. And what does a self-quake consist of? 
based on the passage today and involves an experience of radical beauty, an experience of radical humility, and an experience of radical purity or purification. Let's start with beauty. Verse 3, Isaiah goes into the temple. He sees the seraphim. Some of you are like, what the heck is a seraphim? Didn't see those in the zoo. A seraphim is a heavenly being associated with light and purity. And I think I've got a picture of what they might have looked like there for you. Six wings covering all the eyes. And these seraphim are calling out, holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, magnitude is conveyed through the doubling or the repetition of words. So, for example, if you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 14, you'll read about some people falling into pits. And what the Hebrew text actually says there in Genesis 14 is that they fell into pit pits. That's how it makes the, that's how it adds, it, it adds emphasis. They fell into really pity pits. You see this sort of doubling of words all over the Old Testament. It adds magnitude and emphasis. But here's the thing. Nowhere except here, right here in Isaiah 6, is any quality tripled. God isn't just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. We're talking about a category beyond categories. What's holiness? What's that word mean? On the one hand, it means the best. Something that is superlative, without parallel. So if we say that God's wisdom is holy, for example, it means that God's wisdom is infinitely higher than everybody else's wisdom. But the word holiness has another meaning, too. It also means brilliance, beauty. And that's what you get with the seraphim. Look what they're doing. They are constantly singing and calling out praises to God to one another. They are fascinated by His holiness. They can't get enough of it. They're transfixed. They are loving and adoring God simply for all of His beauty, for who He is. And that is precisely what we start to do when we have an encounter with the reality of God. It's one of the changes that results. Think about it like this. Imagine you've got some family money and someone says they want to marry you. And then after being married a while, your spouse realizes that they cannot get their hands on that family money and so they dump you. They leave you. How would you feel in that situation? You'd feel used. You'd feel like you were just a means to an end. You'd feel like that you were not really loved for who you are in and of yourself. And do you realize that that is how most of us tend to relate to God? How do you think He feels? A lot of people draw near to God. They try out religion because they need something, they want something, and then if it doesn't pan out, they walk away. They throw in the towel and they say, God let me down. He didn't give me what I wanted. I have heard that 150 times as a pastor. A lot of people that I have met over the years, including myself, have operated like that. Guess what? We married God for His money. We married God for his money. But not so with the seraphim. They are not adoring and serving and reveling in God on a cost-benefit analysis. Not because of how God might pay off in some way. They are reveling and worshiping and adoring God simply because it's his due. Because of who he is. Because of the beauty of who he is. For the seraphim, the holiness of God is not useful. It's beautiful. And they just want to enjoy it, like I like to enjoy a good piece of music. 
That's what happens to us when we encounter the reality of God. We begin to enjoy him just for who he is, an experience of beauty. Second thing that happens is an experience of total humility. Look at verse 5. Isaiah goes into the temple. He has this, you know, mind-blowing encounter with God. And, and the first time he gets to say something, he says, Woe is me! That's a curse. That's a malediction. In other words, I don't deserve to live. I'm being dismantled. I'm being undone. That's kind of what he's saying here. What on earth's going on? Let me put it like this. When you're in the presence of human excellence, of human greatness, it can be a bit unsettling. It can be a bit traumatic because it can crush your self-image. So, for example, imagine you're a plumber. Pretty decent plumber, in fact. And you move to a town called Polly's Island and you open shop. And then one day you're out on a site and you run into this guy called Jeffers. And he's a plumber too. And you watch Jeffers do his thing, flawlessly change out a water tank with impeccable efficiency. And you've never seen anybody perform like that before. How do you feel? You feel crushed. You feel your mediocrity. You put down your wrench you give up and you go to McDonald's. <laughs> Woe is me. That's what happens to Isaiah. Now, according to Jewish tradition, if you're a history buff, you're going to like what I'm saying now. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was a member of the royal family in Israel. His father apparently was the brother of the king, and so he was an elite. And, he, and, and we know from his book in the Bible uh, that he was a man of artistic and linguistic and communicative genius. If you wrote a book and people are still reading it carefully and studying it 2,500 years later, you can think of yourself as being successful, okay? This, he was a smart guy, and he lived in an oral culture, and he was a man of lips. He had a golden tongue, and in an oral culture, that kind of gift is power. And no doubt Isaiah saw a big career for himself. At the time when he lived, we know this from the reference to King Uzziah in verse 1, the kingdom of Israel was not really in a good way. Let's just say it was in a big recession. Things weren't going well. And so you can just imagine someone like Isaiah thinking to himself, I know what I'm going to do when I get in charge. I know what's wrong with this country. And when I have power, I'm going to set things straight. I'm going to sort those idiots running the government right on out. Whenever things are wrong, and things are always wrong, you always think it's the people over there who are the problem. The union thinks it's the management. The management thinks it's the union. Democrats think it's Republicans. Republicans think it's Democrats. Chick-fil-A thinks it's Burger King. Burger King thinks it's Chick-fil-A. Everybody thinks it's the guys over there who are unclean. It's the guys over there who are the problem. And then Isaiah gets into the presence of God, God's holiness in the temple, and guess what he realizes? He realizes, I'm the problem. All my people are unclean, and I'm one of them. Even my lips, even the best part of me, are defiled and profane and twisted and selfish. In every single place in the Bible where a human moves from God the idea to God the reality, there's an experience of being profoundly and radically humbled. I feel self-aversion. I feel displeasure with what I am. You see it in the New Testament with Peter. When Peter begins to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, what does he do? He gets on his knees and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. That's what he says. 
the upshot is, how do you know you're in the presence of the living God and being changed by Him? And the answer is, you think of yourself as a sinner. You feel your lostness. You get humbled in your soul. I recognize that I'm part of the problem. I see that I'm more capable of cruelty than I'd ever care to admit. We see that we're more petty and selfish and small-minded and impatient than we ever thought we were, and I see that I need to be saved by grace. By the way, if you're thinking right now, hmm, I don't know about all this preacher. I don't know about this making people feel sinful. That's not good for their self-esteem. Some of you might be thinking that. I've thought that before. Let me just say, if that's what you're thinking, then you haven't been near the real God. That's what happens when Isaiah encounters the presence of the real God. It happens to all of us, but that is not all that happens. One last thing happens. I want to highlight this from verse 6 and 7. It's an experience of purification that happens in that strange little event uh, where the seraphim starts flying around the temple. So we see Isaiah has recognized his sinfulness. He's confessed it. Verse 5, woe is me. And then God begins to explode into his life. The seraphim flies towards him, and it picks up with a tong, a hot coal from the fire of God on its way over to Isaiah. And I have absolutely no doubt that at that moment, Isaiah thought he was going to be a goner because that's normally what happens with the fire of God. But that fire means something else here. When his fire touches the mouth, it does not consume, but it cleans There's a word of pardon, Isaiah's guilt. The guilt from his sinfulness is taken away. It's taken away. Now, I know some of you are thinking, shut the front door. What on earth is going on here? One second after Isaiah realized he didn't deserve to live, that he was more flawed and profane than he could ever dare to admit, one second later he is affirmed and pardoned and more prized and valued than he would ever dare to dream. He's not only accepted by God, but he's also invited to partner with God in restoring the broken world. That's verse 8. God says, hey, who shall we send? And Isaiah says, I'll go. In other words, God's saying, I got this little business I'm running on the side. It's called the company to save the world, and we're recruiting today. We'd love for you to come work for us, and we've just fitted you out for the job. Isaiah got purified. He got changed. His self-image was deconstructed and reconstructed on the spot. In the presence of God's holiness, he was humbled, he was undone, he realized his unworthiness, but then by God's grace, he was remade. He was given a wholeness and a boldness and a purpose that surpasses anything he could have known prior. And because of what he experienced in this moment, he's ready to be deployed by God as a partner in the renewal of all things and serving the world in the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He's able now to do that with a perfect balance of confidence and humility. In other words, he can do it without being an arrogant, self-righteous jerk. He can do it with humility because he realizes he's part of the problem. But he can do it with huge boldness and confidence because he knows that God and his grace is making him part of the solution. And God's going to do that for anybody he wants. And so in that way, Isaiah is changed by his encounter with God. He's never the same, and neither was the world. So, what do we mean at Christ the King when we talk about being changed by God? Well, now you've got some idea, but we're just scratching the surface. And here's the thing. 
The same God that Isaiah met in the temple is the God that we're here to worship. It's in his name that we're gathered. We know him a little bit more personally now. We know him as Jesus. Jesus, the one who was and is and shall be, just like the one that Isaiah met in that temple. Jesus, the one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, living Christ, may you meet us in this place each and every Sunday and in our homes and in our small groups. And may you change us. I speak to you in the name of the big three I admire the most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.